The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, how many of you would say, let's start with this, how many of you would say that, um, that you're on Santa's nice list? Just raise your hand if you think you're on his nice list. <laughs> Kellyanne, for sure, everybody would agree that about you, right? How many on the nice list over here? Some people over here? Well, these people over here think they're nicer than you. They, they, they think. How many people would say, for sure, without a doubt, I'm on the naughty list? Raise your hand if you would say that about you. More of you, more of you uh, would say that. And... Um, Santa's whole MO, the way he does things, is, is, um, is goodness. That, that one word can describe the way that he kind of goes about his business, his criteria for whether or not you get a present under the tree is, is the question, um, have, you, have you been a good boy or a good girl uh, this year? That's the question that he asks when you go and uh, sit on his knee, which, which is creepy, by the way. How many people agree that's creepy? For sure, for sure that's creepy. Um, but I'm, I'm really grateful this morning, just thinking about all of that silliness, really. I'm grateful that God isn't on the Naughty and Nice program, aren't you? God totally is not on that uh, program, because um, the bottom line is, I don't, I don't care if you raise your hand uh, for the nice part, none of us is nice. N- n- none of us, none of us are nice. Um, we're all, let's get our theology straight for a second. How many people are on the naughty list? Okay, let's get our theology straight. How many people are on the naughty list? Everybody. Kellyanne, put your hand up. Okay. You know the Bible. No one has been a good boy or a girl. Uh, no one, no one is good. And you know I'm right. Mark chapter 10, uh, we meet a man who's struggling with that very uh, concept um, he's uh, confused, really, about the, this very thing of, of, of goodness, and he is on, because it isn't just Santa who operates by this, he's on the naughty or nice religious program. And that's how he viewed his relationship to God. And this man, uh, he's a young man, he's a rich man. If you look at all three of the Gospels that tell this story, you, you kind of find out he's young, he's a rich, and he's a leader of some sort in the community, And he comes to Jesus essentially to ask him the question, ask Jesus the question, how can I be sure that I'm going to heaven when I die? And I feel like there's a lot of people wondering the same thing today. How do I know that I'm going to heaven? Or or if, if they don't want to go as far as to acknowledge that there might be a heaven, they do have this question. Every single human being has the question, what happens after I die? And that's what this young man was wondering about. What's going to happen after I die? But he had locked down the idea that he wanted to be in eternity with God. And Jesus' advent into the world was to give that very assurance to people. God's entrance into the world, what we celebrate here at Christmas, that's what the whole thing was about. Giving us the assurance that we would know where we're going when we die. Now, presumably, this young man had never found a good answer to his question from all of the religious leaders that he knew throughout his life. He got with Jesus, and he asked him because he saw something different in the teaching of Jesus. 
There was something compelling about it, something that drew him to actually ask Jesus this particular question. And just because there's a lot of people today who are just as confused about the nature of a relationship with God, we need the clarity that the Word of God is going to give us today on this very, on this very issue. What's it going to take to really get with Jesus and to really lock down where I'm going to spend eternity? So let me pray for us. Actually, let me read the text, and then I'm going to pray for us. And... Um, and then we'll start working through this. So this is Mark chapter 10, uh, 17 through 31 is our text. And as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit in eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at, these, at his words, but Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The word of God, amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for the time that we have together this weekend before Christmas. And we really are grateful for uh, the plan that you put into place, saw your son take on human flesh and live here among us, identifying with us, knowing our hurts and our struggles. Father, no other God claims such a thing. And thank you for the abundant life and the eternal life that you have offered us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that offer would be super clear today as we open your word uh, right now. Father, in these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you want to get with Jesus, uh, don't ask the wrong question. Uh, what must I do? That is the question that the young man asked, but it is exactly the wrong question. He asked it this way. Let me put the emphasis in the right place. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at verse 17 again. As he was setting out on his journey, so Jesus is kind of heading out, a man ran up and knelt before him. Now let's pause and just acknowledge 
the energy and the zeal, the eagerness that this young man has to come up and engage with Jesus about this topic. He's very sincere about it. He's very energized about it. We can acknowledge that right now. This isn't just kind of a passive, a while we're hanging around, let's talk about this thing. He's eager for an answer. He knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, here's the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's starting from a presumption that he actually has to do something to get eternal life. He thought it was about his efforts, just as people today most often will believe that they have to do something to get right with God. The average Jew at the time would have believed that observing the law, that's a key phrase, we, we just spent all this time in the book of Exodus and we looked at the Mosaic law, the law of God as it was handed down. The average Jew of the day would have believed that the way to be right with God was observing the law. If I just listen to everything it says in the Bible and I, and I do everything that it says perfectly, if I can just do that, that makes me a good Jew. It makes me right with God. And the question really is the right one that the young man asked from his perspective. He asked the question, what do I have to do? I mean, this is a hardworking person. This is a person of some means. He's become a leader. He's a doer. He's achieved his wealth through what he did. He's achieved his influence and status through what he did. Everything in the world is filtered through this lens of I need to do something to achieve this. It's the wrong question. If any of you are asking the same question, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? It's a wrong question. And Jesus is about to point that out to him. Don't ask the wrong question, what must I do? The wrong question flows from wrong belief. You just believe the wrong thing. Don't believe the wrong thing. And the wrong thing to believe is that you have to be good to get right with God. The young man had shown great respect. Back in verse 17, he called him good teacher, not knowing that he's actually now opening the door to a conversation about goodness and what makes a man good. And Jesus is going to exploit that opening. And he's going to walk right into the door that the young man is opening for him to have this conversation about the nature of goodness and a relationship with God. So Jesus asks him, verse 18, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? And no one is good except God alone. Now we can have some fun with this, of course, as we read this, because we know that Jesus is God. We know that he is good. We know that he's sinless. We know that he's perfect and holy in every single way. So we read this and we go, Jesus is good, actually. He got it right. So it's kind of funny that Jesus is kind of pushing back on him a little bit, but he's trying to challenge this young man to think critically. And the statement, of course, is rooted, what Jesus is saying here is rooted in Old Testament teaching that only God is good. And that now is going to become the foundation for everything else that Jesus is going to say in this conversation. So in verse 19, Jesus dives into the Ten Commandments. Uh, You know the commandments. This is all he says to him. Well, you know the commandments. Then he lists six of them. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. 
Now, those of you who are very astute here, you're savvy on the Ten Commandments and what's been listed here, he lists the last six and he leaves out the first four. The first four of the Ten Commandments, by the way, are entirely related to our vertical relationship with God, just us and him and sorting that all out. And the last six are all about our horizontal relationships with one another. And that's what he goes after here. He's, he's trying to challenge this young man to think in terms of where he lives, in terms of his relationships with others. But all Jesus says is, you know the commandments. And he just lists them. He's not really in this moment relating them to the young man. He's just mentioning them because he wants the young man to understand something about goodness and the nature of being in a relationship with God. He's making the point, in fact, that you can't keep the commandments the way you think you can. Why? Only God is good. Only God is good. We're locking down what we believe here. But the young man's reply in verse 20 shows he doesn't get that. Look what he says. Verse 20, he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Uh, No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You might think you have. You might have created some kind of an illusion that you have. Or you might have at some level outwardly thought that you've kept these things, but what about in your heart? Have you really kept all of these? He believes the wrong thing. He believes that he has to be good and that he actually not only can keep the commandments, but he believes that from his youth, from the moment, he's a good Jewish boy, so from the moment of his bar mitzvah where he became a man and was now responsible himself for the law, he believes from that moment on, he kept the law. Outward observance. And at best, he's grossly misunderstanding the nature of the commandments as being something that has less to do with outward observance and everything to do with a heart of true holiness before the Lord. He's misunderstanding that. He thinks it's just about the outward things that he's, he's done. And this is where so many err today believing that external conformity to a set of religious standards is the way to get with God. It's not, it that, it's, not, it's not that at all. Oh, you can't be good. You can't. The point of the Ten Commandments wasn't to give us a list of things that we had to measure up to. The whole point of the commandments we learned just weeks ago, the whole point of the commandments was actually to point out your sin. It's actually to let you know just how naughty you really are. And, and, and then at that starting point to say, that's the first step and the first thing you have to believe before you can accept the salvation that God has for you. If you don't start with an understanding that you're a sinner, well then there's no possibility that you're ever gonna get that God has a gift for you that's actually gonna erase that sin. You can't do it on your own. You may have seen it in the news this week that the Pope is going to canonize Mother Teresa uh, this coming September. How many people saw that in the news this week? Okay, so Mother Teresa is going to become a saint. And uh, this is because a second miracle has been attributed to her. I think we would all agree that at some level, Mother Teresa has been a good person, lived a good life, uh, one of, of great caring for people. 
Um, maybe she would say, why do you call me good? Um, only God is good. I don't know if she would have said that. But, but a second miracle was attributed to her. By the way, not, att- not attributed to her in the sense that she actually did the miracle, but attributed to her in the sense that somebody prayed to her to heal a person, and the person was reportedly healed. And since they prayed in her name, uh, the miracles attributed to her a second one. And, and so that's enough to be, in, in Roman Catholicism, that's enough for the Pope to say that I'm, I'm going to make you a saint. Now, there's all kinds of things that are messed up with that. And don't square it all with the word of God. But, but, but here's the theological misunderstanding that I really want to camp on. The Catholics will believe that if you're good enough and do enough good things, in this case, um, a lifetime of serving and, and two miracles, that's the math, then you can achieve this special status called sainthood. The Bible tells us this. That even caring for orphans in the slums of Kolkata, India, isn't enough to erase your sin debt and to have you declared a saint. But listen to this, and I want you to, I want you to hear this clearly. If Mother Teresa trusted Jesus Christ, personally trusted him as her Lord and Savior, and believing that his sacrifice alone was sufficient to erase her sin, if Mother Teresa believed that, then she was already a saint, and nothing the Pope or the Catholic Church says about it is going to make any difference in the equation. The Apostle Paul said this, and it brings a lot of clarity to this whole thing. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and, underline this, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Underline this, not a result of works. It's not. So don't ask the wrong question. Don't believe the wrong thing and and don't make the wrong decision. And walk away sad. And for me, verse 21 is the climax of the encounter. Look at uh, verse 21. And, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Pause there for a second. He, he loved him. And first you have to know that the love that Jesus had for him was, was really unconditional. It was the sacrificial kind of love that God exemplifies perfectly. God truly loves you unconditionally. That is who you are. Loved by him unconditionally, sacrificially. But the young man was struggling to grasp that because his love, both the the love that he would express for someone else, was filled with conditions. And so he viewed God's love for him in terms of a bunch of conditions. For him, the relationship with God, if I can use that word, relationship, was, was contractual. It was, I'll fulfill some things, God, toward you, and then you'll fulfill some things for me. He's a businessman, so this is the way he thinks. God, I'll be a good person and keep the Ten Commandments, and then you'll give me eternal life. That's the premise upon he's working. That's the contract he signed with God. The problem was he had no assurance that it was actually working. That's why he comes to Jesus to ask the question. 
He had attached all these conditions to love, misunderstanding that it was unconditional love that God had for him. It's a love that it's right here, that Jesus loved him in this way and said to him, you lack one thing. Now the thing he lacks, the one thing he lacks is genuine faith. That's the, that's the only thing. We're going to see that in a moment. It's heart belief. So Jesus says to him, watch the imperatives here. Go, that's the first one, sell, that's the second one, all that you have, and third, give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. That's the thing he's looking for. He wants to know how he can inherit eternal life. So Jesus tells him, this is the way. You're going to go, you're going to sell everything, you're going to give it all to the poor, and then he says, a couple more imperatives, and then come and follow me. Now, how many people reading that verse and hearing everything I've said up until this moment are going, hang on a second, Todd, this sounds exactly like the opposite of everything you've been saying up until this moment. How many people are there? This sounds kind of like the opposite, because I've been saying you don't have to do anything to get right with God, and now we have a verse here where Jesus is actually saying to him, here's the things I want you to do. Here's five imperatives. You have to do these things, and if you don't do these things, then you're not going to be square with God. You see, the thing is here, that God is going for his heart. He doesn't care about the riches and whether he owns it or doesn't own it. But there was a blockage to heart belief. There's a blockage to faith. And the blockage in this, in this young man's case, the blockage was his riches. It was his wealth. It was actually the thing that he loved more than God. Now, if you want to understand how Jesus uh, really believes and what, what he's saying here, um, you just look at other encounters with other people in the Gospels and you'll see that in each case, it's, it's something different. When he met with the Samaritan woman uh, by the well, it wasn't, he didn't say to her, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That wasn't a formula for getting right with God. He said to her, you need to quit all the immoral relationships. That was the thing that was between her and God. Or, or you think about the encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a man of some influence and he was a pretty prideful man. In fact, he would only meet with Jesus at night. He didn't want to do it publicly for fear of other religious leaders finding out and putting pressure on him. So he, Nicodemus' problem was pride. You need to get humble and you read the passage and you realize the whole thing's about humility. Ditching his pride and his status and what he thinks about himself. You think about Peter. And for Peter, a hardworking fisherman who knew how to provide for his family. And for him, it was, you need to leave your vocation and come and follow me. You need to set the nets aside and trust me. See, for every person, it's slightly different. And for this young man, the problem really was his wealth. And so when you look at this, you can't get lost in the details of the wealth and what he's saying there. You, you want to mine out the principles and say that this is really a case study in, in, in what are the hindrances to following Christ? What, what are the hindrances in my life to following Christ? Because any number of things might grip our hearts and keep us from getting with Jesus. A, a, a vocation might be the problem or a lifestyle decision that we make. Or maybe we have a sinful passion and it's pretty obvious that that's the thing that grips our heart. Or a relationship that we have that's just not healthy for us. I don't know what it is, but the call here is not necessarily to sell everything you own and you'll be saved. 
but it is a call to get everything out of the way of you exclusively following Jesus Christ. And that's going to be costly in different ways for different people. And the whole thing is, faced with the decision that he had in front of him, he made the wrong one. And I'm just wondering, verse 22, we've already read it. But is this not the saddest verse in the entire Bible? Is it not at least near the top of that list for us all? His response, verse 22, disheartened, literally means his face fell. Jesus said to him, you have to sell everything and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And his face fell. Disheartened by what Jesus said, by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, I think what's most discouraging for me about this young man's response, especially as a pastor, and um, Dan's right here, and, and he's been in pastoral ministry for a long time, and Roger's here, and, and we, would just, we would just say to you that the saddest part about pastoral ministry is when you know that you have the words of life, you have the ability to help a person find Christ and find the life change and the joy and the peace that comes with walking with Christ, to share that repeatedly with people and to have them walk away and not embrace the message that you know will bring them abundant life here and eternal life forever. Of all the other sad things we do, at times, nothing sadder than this one, that someone would walk away in the same way that this young man does in Mark 10. I'm wise enough, and I've been doing this long enough to know it's going to happen this morning again. It's going to happen right here. The gospel's being presented. An offer is being made. And some of you have not taken up the offer that God has put before you. And some of you are going to walk out of here not receiving that gift. To me, there's nothing sadder than that. Notice this in the text. It's not stated in any way, but it's obvious. Jesus didn't chase him. He, he, didn't, he didn't go running after him to say, hey, hey hang on a second. Uh, maybe I was just a little too hard on you. Uh, maybe if you sold half of what all you had and just put the rest in savings and come and follow me. I mean, can we work out something here? Uh, maybe I was just a little hard with you. Let's, let's sand off the edges. Let's make it a little more palatable for you, a little easier for you. But Jesus obviously doesn't do that. I'm not the kind of preacher that's gonna do that either. Jesus demands your life. It's going to cost you something. Whatever it is that's in the way of you and God, you've got to give that up. You have to confess that you're a sinner, that you're not good, that you have no way of getting to God on your own, and you have to give up the thing, whatever it is, maybe multiple things. Whatever it is, you've got to give it up to follow Jesus. Everybody in the room that has a relationship with Christ has already done this. And come and follow him. There's no way to soften that message. Well, here's, here's what I pray for and long for. Instead, 
that all spiritual inquirers, all those who are wondering and seeking after God, would ask the right question, and the right question is, uh, who can be saved? And that's exactly the question that the disciples asked Jesus. Jump down to verse 26. We'll come back uh, to 23 in a moment. But here's the question. They were exceedingly astonished, this is the disciples, and said to him, then who can be saved? They were wrestling with what he had just said to the young man and the high demand. They were exceedingly astonished. We might say they were blown away, taken aback by what Jesus had said here. Seeing the narrowness of the way to eternal life. That the, that the path is not easy but hard. That there is a cost or a demand on discipleship that many don't consider. And so they asked the question, who, who can be saved then? It, 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 it seems, Jesus, you can hear them saying this, it seems like you're setting up an impossible standard. And you can almost hear Jesus answering, saying, yes, now finally you get it. Perfect. We're getting somewhere. That's, that's the great question, because listen, who then can be saved is a, it's a, it's a humble question. It's a, it's a non-presumptuous question. It's a question of genuine inquiry. I can't see any way for me to be saved. I know that I'm not a good person. I just can't see how this is going to happen. And really the question leads to one of only two possible answers. Who then can be saved? One possible answer? No one. It's not going to happen. Or God can make it happen. Those are really the only two possible answers, and there's no presumption behind that. I'm not assuming that I can do anything religiously to affect my own salvation or guarantee my own eternal life. I can't do anything to save myself. So the right question leads to right belief. Believe the right thing. With men... It's impossible. Okay, back to verse 23. See this now. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, the young man's off and gone now. How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus is going to seize the moment now to actually teach them about wealth. That's where he wants to go with it, just for a moment. But he's still in the same theme about the goodness of God. And again, he wants us to hear all the principles that are coming off of all of this. This was the thing that kept this young man from God was his wealth. And money is a problem. Any nodding heads? Money's a problem. In fact, if we would look at, jot down, jot down this reference, 1 Timothy 6.10. It's not really money that's the problem, is it? What does that verse say? Paul says it's the... It's the love of money that's really the problem. Money's just a tool, it's just a thing. But if you love it, and you're gripped by it, and you're always dreaming about it, and you want more of it, and you have lots of it, and, and you're hoarding it because you love it so much, that's, that's really the problem. And jot down this reference as well, Matthew 6, uh, 24. That verse is just in a little section where Jesus is teaching about money, where he essentially says you can't have two masters, and people who love money can't love God. Can't love God. Can't have two masters. You're serving one or you're serving the other, but you're never serving both. 
So again, this is where Jesus is going with all of this. So verse 24 then, he makes more of a general statement, steps out of the wealth thing to really just lock down a general statement. The disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's just flat out hard for everyone. Not just rich people. It's hard for everyone. And then he returns to the topic of wealth and says this in verse 25. It's kind of a funny verse. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So he goes to kind of this little metaphor. And I know some of you, um, I know some of you have heard preachers tell you that what's going on here, I'm going to introduce you to a friend here um, in a second. Um, so try not to be too distracted by Noel. She's been with our family a long time, actually, since before we were married. Um, so, Noel's a reindeer, in case you didn't know that. So here's the thing. Some of you have heard preachers talk about this passage, and what they've said about this is Jesus talks about a camel going through the eye of the needle. Tell me if you've heard this before, that the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem, but it was a smaller gate. And when camels would go through that gate, they used to have to stoop right down. Their handlers would have to take them right down and they'd almost have to crawl through the gate because it was such a small gate. And that's what Jesus is talking about. How many people have ever heard a preacher uh, say something like that? Okay, and I'm sure you love that preacher who said that, uh, but he was wrong. Listen, it's cute. It's cute. And people love that kind of crap. Honestly, they do. No, they do. And, And... but here's the thing, there's no historical evidence and no archaeological evidence whatsoever that there were, was ever a little gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. Zero, none. None. And, and, and to believe that, by the way, what, that interpretation, you know what that interpretation is? That really what you're saying is it's not impossible, what you're saying is it's just hard. See, it would just be hard for a large camel to go through a smaller gate and what you're saying is that you're a preacher who doesn't want to alienate all the rich people in your church by telling them that it's impossible to be saved. No pastor wants to alienate the rich people. That would be foolish. (laughs) See, 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 to say that misses the whole meaning of it. Now this is why I have Noel here because I don't don't have a stuffed camel. But um, a camel is a Christmas animal, correct? Work with me. A camel's a Christmas animal. Thank you. And so is Noel. She's a reindeer. <laughs> this is a needle. Needle, right? It's a needle. So there's, there's an eye in the needle here. And how successful am I going to be at getting Noel, who's standing in for the camel? How successful am I going to be at getting Noel, who, by the way, is significantly smaller than a real camel? How successful am I going to be at getting Noel through the eye of the needle? Well, let's try it. I have my glasses on. I can see this. Okay. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Aw. Poor Noel. Would you hold Noel respectfully? And you get the needle. So... Um, are not going to happen. It's impossible. The point of Jesus using this metaphor, and it's really a, a hyperbolic, it's hyperbole, 
uh, a metaphor. The, the reason why he's doing this is to show the whole context. It's impossible. It's not hard. To, 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 to change the metaphor is to lose the impact of everything he's saying in the context. It's impossible. A camel can't go through the eye of the needle, period. Read the Bible plainly. It's going to be very helpful if you do that. It's impossible. An actual camel can't go through the actual eye of an actual needle. In fact, that's the word he uses. Look at verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Salvation's a work of God, entirely a work of God. Now let's look again at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We already looked at these verses. Let's bring it back now. Let's underline different phrases in the same two verses. Notice, by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, the, the undeserved and unearned favor of God. That's grace. Undeserved and unearned. You can't do anything to get it. It's grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. If there's one thing that you do, if I can use that word, what do I have to do? The only thing you have to do is bring the smallest amount of faith to say, I believe that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, gave his life for me, shed his blood for me to cleanse my sins. And I ask for him to forgive me. That's the only thing you have to do is exercise that small amount of faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. Notice it's not your own doing. We saw that already. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. And the thing with the gift is all you have to do is receive it. Just receive it. So have you received the gift yet? So make the right decision. Ask the right question. Believe the right thing. And make the right decision. Leave everything to follow him. Now, it's Christmas. And this is, um, would you agree with me, this is a bit of a non-traditional Christmas passage. Slightly non-traditional. And here's the Christmas part. Jesus did come as a baby, born in a, animal enclosure of some kind, witnessed by shepherds in the first round of all of this happening and welcomed and lauded by holy angels from heaven. Some months later, after uh, the family had moved into a house of some kind, some kingmakers, advisors to kings, magi from the east, came to that home and presented gifts. It was no small thing that happened because they were very influential politically at that time. For them to appear in the small town and meet with this young family, well, this was a highly impactful thing. In fact, if you remember the Herod story and how he flipped out about the whole thing, I'm just telling you, he wasn't wrong to flip out. That his paranoias were, in fact, all correct. His reaction was pretty horrific. But Herod wasn't wrong about the impact this child would have on the world. He wasn't wrong about the fact that the child wanted his throne and Caesar's throne and the thrones of all the kings and, and leaders of this world. And he will have them. 
Herod wasn't wrong. And I was intrigued because at Christmas we get so nostalgic about all of this. About the baby and the shepherds and the magi. And we tell this story and it's all so wonderful and we put so much effort into the whole thing. But I was struck by this song lyric that somebody posted on Facebook this week that he's not a, he's not a baby in a manger anymore. And I, I would just say to us as the church, let's not forget that part of it. Now let's remember all of this and rehearse it all again. It's, it's wonderful, but, but he's not a baby in a manger anymore. He came to save us from our sin. He came to save us from our sin because we could not save ourselves. We can't overcome the debt to God that our sin has created. We have no capacity to overcome our pride, to overcome our sinful passions, to overcome the relationships that are keeping us from God to overcome our immorality, our love of money. We have no capacity to give up any of that. It's rooted so deeply in our hearts. And this is what we need to believe and act on. This is the decision. The shepherds saw him in the manger. The magi in a house the young men came to him as he was setting out on a journey. But you and I, it's right here and right now. This is where the encounter with Jesus Christ is coming. And you and I have to see him not as the baby in the manger, but as the Savior on the cross. We have to see him as the resurrected Savior coming from the tomb. We have to see him as the Savior he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God right now. We have to anticipate him as the one who is returning in judgment on this world. He's not a baby in a manger anymore. The disciples made the right decision. Verse 28, Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. They left everything they needed to leave. It's not that they left everything. It's that they left everything that was in the way of their relationship with God. And Jesus laid out a, an amazing promise to them in 29 through the end. I say to you, there's no one who's left all these things for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold back now in this time all of these things. Whatever you leave, God's going to multiply that back to you. If you're estranged from your family because of Christ, you have a family that's much larger and more passionate that you're more connected to through the power of God's Holy Spirit in us. Whatever you left, God's going to pour that out a hundred times in this life. It's the abundant life that Jesus speaks of in John's gospel. And beyond that, eternal life. And he throws in this little thing with persecutions. In other words, it's not a free ride in this life and some things are still gonna be hard. But when I start pouring out my love, my peace, my joy, when I put hope in your heart, those things so surpass anything that you might have given up or anything that you might have to go through. 
in this life. The rewards that God offers through Christ far outweigh anything we leave behind to follow him and anything we might face going forward. The contrast here is striking. The disciples had indeed done that, but the young man had failed to make this right decision. And it's not unlike in this room. Again, some of you have made the right decision and you're enjoying the abundant life now and you have the promise and assurance of eternal life to come. And some of you in this room have not made that decision. And what I would, what I would want to do here today is, is exactly what Jesus did with the young man. I just want to make the offer. I just want to make the offer that you could make that decision today to express faith in Jesus Christ, to leave behind everything that is keeping you from the abundant life and from eternal life. And so I want to I lead us in prayer right now, and I've not done this for a very long time, but if you could close your eyes and bow your heads with me right now. And I want to speak specifically to those, the rest of you can pray, but for those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've not made this decision to follow him, I'm going to invite you to just, in your heart, as you hear me pray, believe that this is you praying. This is your prayer. So I'm going to pray it. You can agree with the words if today you're making a decision to follow Jesus Christ. You can just whisper an amen at the end of this if this is the prayer you're praying. God, please um, hear me as I pray. I now know from hearing your word and I understand that Jesus Christ is the only way. I can't do it myself. And I want to be with you in heaven when I die. I want to enjoy all the benefits of living for you now. I know that I'm not good. I know that I'm a sinner. And I believe in this moment that only Jesus can save me. Please forgive my sin and make me part of your family. And I am from this moment on pledging to leave behind all the things that till now have kept me from you. And I'm giving my life to follow you. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the message of your word. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. The scriptures are clear. Salvation is about believing your heart and confessing it with your mouth. And if you prayed that prayer with me today, if you said the amen and you want to become a follower of Christ, the only thing I would ask of you is that you would confess that, that you would say it to somebody before you leave this place today. Let somebody know that you prayed the prayer. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.